It is a wonderful truth that we celebrate this morning as we come to this place of worship and study to know that God's forgiveness has been given to us so uh, easily through the gift of God himself. And today we celebrate that together here in this place. I want you to take a copy of God's word and turn to the gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 as we talk about forgiveness, as we talk about God's limitless, wonderful forgiveness for us as his children. Last week we talked some about the prodigal son who returned and how the father embraced him compassionately. And how many times have we experienced that as God's children? We've experienced that limitless forgiveness of God, that he has welcomed us back. How many fatted calves has he killed on our behalf to celebrate our return? We talk about God's forgiveness and we see the extensive, exhaustive nature of it. And yet we do know there comes a place in, in God's testimony where he speaks to us about that limit about this unforgivable sin, that there is a place that we can go. Let me say, there are some places that individuals can go in their lives in which the forgiveness of God is not seen. And this is what Jesus speaks about. It's very strange that Jesus would speak about the unforgivable sin because, again, for us as his believers, we have seen forgiveness simply poured out upon our lives. But notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 3. Beginning in verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness." but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Here Jesus has launched his ministry, his earthly ministry. He's been about this public declaration of God's kingdom. And in this process, people are beginning to respond in different ways. Actually, in this chapter, it says that those who are close to him, as they see him go out, as they see the miracles, as they hear him proclaim the kingdom, many that were close to him began to think that he was, well, that he was out of his mind. If you look at verse 20 and verse 21, it says that they diagnose him as insane. And yet Jesus' ministry continues to gain traction. And as it gains traction, it also gains the attention of the spiritual leadership up in Jerusalem. The scripture tells us that an investigative team is dispatched from Jerusalem to go and find out about this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What is he doing? They've heard reports. They've heard people talking about the power. They've heard people talk about his teaching. And now they determine that it is for themselves that they must send 
this investigative team to find out who this Jesus is. So they come down from Jerusalem and they investigate. They try to see who Jesus is. They listen to him. Perhaps they see what's going on in his life and notice what they determine. They determine that Jesus must somehow be associated with the prince of darkness. They believe Jesus. Now get this. The spiritual leadership of the country, they believe that Jesus somehow has been empowered by Satan himself. It's in the process of this. It's in the context of this determination that Jesus utters these words again in verse 28 and in verse 29 where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. So look at this context. And look at how Jesus responds to this investigative team. He says first that all sins that you can even imagine or think about, that all of these sins, he said, can be forgiven. Now, we're going to focus this morning on the unforgivable, but may we stop for a moment and recognize all that is forgivable and how we should be moved to know that all sins, Jesus says all sins can be forgiven. The limitless work of God and his grace in our lives to give us the forgiveness we so desperately need. Look, we recognize that in the incarnation, in the cross, and in the resurrection, Jesus Christ offered to us forgiveness for all of our unrighteousness, for all of our sin. Because, get this, man could try its best. He could try his best to ascend into heaven and to determine this relationship with God. And yet, through all of our efforts, through all of our works, we could never attain such righteousness on our own. But get this, God looking down at us in his love and in his grace, he descended to earth in the incarnation. He died on the cross and he took upon all of our sins. And he demonstrated through the resurrection that he had the power to forgive us of our sins. This morning we may focus on the unforgivable, but I want you to make sure that you do not neglect that which is forgivable in your life and in mine. And that we would marvel at the extensive, exhaustive nature of God's love and forgiveness. That he would put all of these things under his blood. Think about it just a moment with me again. Think about how limitless this forgiveness is for the sins that we have committed. If you've cheated in any way, God can forgive you. If you have somehow lied to somebody else, get this, God can forgive you. If you've embezzled money from your business, listen, God can forgive you. If for some reason you have uh, cheated on your spouse, listen to me this morning, God can forgive you. If for some reason this morning you're here and you say, I've hated these people, I've sought to destroy these individuals, God can forgive you. There's no murderer, 
There's no rapist that is outside God's grace and love that could not experience forgiveness in their lives if they would come and repent before God. Isn't that amazing? That God would love us so much that He says, all sins. Even O King David, the adulterer and the murderer that he was, experienced the forgiveness of God. Now, this is what amazes me as well. Not only that all or every type of sin can be forgiven, but that all of our sins could be paid for upon the cross there at Calvary. All of our sins. I mean, come on. I look out at some of you this morning, I see some big sinners. I mean, you ought to come see this view sometimes. You would probably agree with me as you look out. I mean, to think of this. Not only the exhaustive nature, the extensive nature of the sin, but that God would take all of our sins, every sin that we have committed, just say those that are here in this sanctuary, those who are up in the gathering this morning, that He would take all of our sins and He would say, I will forgive you of all of those. I have paid for all of those sins. To me, it is mind-boggling. It's one thing to say, God, you have forgiven me of my sins, and I recognize how exhaustive that is, and I, ex- I understand how I've fallen short of the glory of God, but God, that you would multiply that time in and time over with all of our sins, that you would forgive us. I say so many times we do come to this passage and we focus upon the unforgivable, but Never forget what Jesus said in verse 28. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter. Don't forget the extensive, exhaustive nature of God's forgiveness and love for you and for me. God's love and His grace is so extensive and significant and powerful. With that backdrop then, Jesus says this. Jesus says, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. That seems so out of the nature of Jesus. After all, we just spoke about the extensive, exhaustive nature of his love and forgiveness. And now that Jesus would come and he would say, There is one thing, though. There is one thing that you cannot be forgiven for. There is one thing... That is unforgivable. What is this thing? This morning as you look at this context and as you look at this, the passage itself. I hope that you can see that Jesus is speaking about a continuous willful rejection of the Spirit's witness regarding Jesus as Christ. Now let me give you that definition one more time because I've worked through it this week. I've gone to Leslie and I said, Leslie, does it sound right? Because, you know, she's pretty good. She, she, she gives me pretty good feedback. She doesn't write my sermons, but she's pretty good at helping me with my sermons. You know what I'm talking about? Guys, you know. And I really worked through that this week because I've seen so many definitions. There are so many people that will define the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in different ways. Some will say it's one act. Some will say it's a repetition of acts or a continual act. 
for me, as I look at the context, as I look at the passage, and as I've written it down, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this. It is the continuous, willful rejection of the Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus as the Christ. So with that definition put out there for you, for you to think about, I want to kind of try to flesh that out for us in the next few minutes, okay? As we talk about that which is unforgivable. First of all, I want you to see that it is a continuous, willful rejection. And as you look at this passage, you'll see that it is a willful rejection against reason itself. Again, the investigative team comes down. Can you imagine the way this committee looks? They've been voted on properly by the religious leadership. They've been set aside. They've been given all the resources. They have the panel that will discuss it and investigate. They go down to try to find out what's going on in Jesus' life. Their conclusion, once again, is that this man is Beelzebub. Beelzebub. What does that mean? Literally, it means like the Lord of the Flies. You've probably heard people mention that before. But this is a term that speaks to Satan. In other words, this is the prince of the air. This is Satan himself. We have come with all of our learning and all of our understanding. And what we have decided as the religious leadership is that this man represents demonic power. Jesus takes them to task. Jesus reminds them that this defies all type of reason. Now, look what he says. He said, you've come and you've said I'm Beelzebub. But verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. Do you hear Jesus here? I mean, you hear this repetition of how unreasonable their conclusions are. They have decided that he is able to cast out demons by the power of Satan. That somehow he can come and cast out demons because he is a demon. And Jesus says that defies all type of reason. If I'm a demon, why would I want to be casting out a demon? I mean, Satan himself knows that the best thing he can do is to unify his army, not divide his army. And yet you are suggesting that Satan is dividing his forces in order to build his kingdom. Jesus says, that defies all logic and reason. You see, these individuals were so bent upon opposing Christ that they willfully rejected reason itself. Now, you've probably found individuals before that would just simply reject reason itself. If you haven't, you probably ought to go to a Baptist church more often, right? You'll find individuals that you just cannot reason with. They are illogical in their thinking. 
even as you talk to them about spiritual things, and we'll talk about how certainly the Spirit has to bring conviction. We know that. But I'm saying to you, at the very base of who they are and who you are in your conversations, you find that these individuals are simply unreasonable. They have their own agendas. They have their own motives. And they are not reasonable. For these of the religious leadership, for them to come down and to conclude that Jesus is Satan demonstrates that they are willfully, notice this, they're making their own choice to willfully reject reason itself. The most learned people of Israel, don't miss that, the most learned people of Israel, the most reasonable people of Israel, willfully reject reason when it comes to Jesus. Jesus simply points out that Satan will not stand against himself. And then as you continue to read through this, you note that these individuals willfully reject the Spirit's manifestation, the Spirit's manifestation of power. Now, when you read through this, don't misunderstand me. They do not reject the idea that demons have been cast out. Did you note that? I mean, this special investigative team, as they go down, as they try to determine what's happened... None of them challenge the fact that demons have been cast out. They agree with that. It's hard to disagree with those things. I mean, when God does something, when the Spirit of God works in our lives, it's hard to deny that something happened, right? It's kind of in the church's life. We've been there before where we've seen the Spirit of God manifest Himself within the church. And everybody there knew that, this, that somehow something had happened. That we had seen a manifestation of power. So they, don't, they do not disagree. They do not disagree that Jesus has cast out demons. Rather, they have attributed the work of Christ to the work of Satan. And they have missed, they have willfully rejected the Spirit, the Spirit of God's manifestation of power. They've attributed it to other spirits. Today there are many individuals who could recognize that something powerful happens. That they can see a miracle or they can see a scene and they can... They might try to explain it in some type of scientific way, but they know that something's happened. They don't doubt that this has occurred. But what happens is that they willfully choose to reject that it was a God-ordained work, a God-ordained power. And they try to attribute it to all kinds of different sources, resources in life. That's what these individuals have done. They recognize that the power of, that power has been demonstrated. They just simply ascribe it 
to the work of Satan instead of the work of God. Spirits work. They have become so hardened in their outlooks, in their lives, that they have missed recognizing God's Spirit at work. This is what I think Jesus is talking about. When we come to that place where we have hardened our hearts in such a way that we shield ourselves from God's Spirit and His activity in our lives, that we have failed to recognize that it is God who is working. We harden our hearts. Now, some of you in here this morning when I started looking at this passage or uh, maybe you saw the title, you read the passage beforehand, some of you probably said to yourself, I wonder if I've ever done this before. It's amazing how many people, Christians, would come and they would say something to the effect, have I ever committed such a sin? My response to you would be this. If you're asking that question, then you know you've never committed that type of sin. Why? Why would I say such? Because these individuals have so hardened their heart, they have so hardened it to the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't even be asking these kind of questions. They have totally hardened themselves. They have likened Jesus to Satan himself. It says later on in the explanation that's given in verse 30, Mark gives us, he says, Jesus said this because they said he has an unclean spirit. In other words, Jesus was saying what he did because they had said that he had an unclean spirit. They had so hardened their heart to the Spirit's witness in their lives. The Holy Spirit was authenticating who Jesus was. He was authenticating Jesus' message and mission. Remember, when Jesus performed miracles, he certainly did it out of love and compassion, but he also did it in order to demonstrate who he was. Every miracle that Jesus performed should have pointed his audience to the recognition that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. Every miracle that he performed. And instead of recognizing that, they hardened their heart to the Spirit's witness, to the Spirit's testimony. The Spirit is so active and alive and casting out demons and working through Jesus. And yet they have hardened their hearts. See, I think this is a continual action, though. I, I think as you look at this passage and other passages of the New Testament, it is, a, it is a continual work, a continual action in your heart to harden and harden and harden yourself against the Spirit's activity. You know what I'm talking about. About how the Holy Spirit convicts and works. And yet, as you harden yourself against that activity, it seems to get easier to harden yourself the next time, and the next time, and the next time. Some years ago, some of you will remember this, but wildfires were totally consuming the state of Florida. I know we don't necessarily hear about wildfires in Florida very often, so this piqued my attention when they were coming through. I, 
I felt empathy for the folks who were there who were suffering. I watched different stories about the wildfires as they were spreading there. And I'll remember this story talking about wildfires that would not only consume a piece of property or land, but wildfires that would come back through the second and the third and the fourth time. They would burn the same area over and over and over. It seems so strange to me that fires could come through and do such. And they talked about it. They, they talked about how the first time that wildfire came through that piece of property, let's, say, let's take, for example, a stump. The first time that wildfire would come through and burn that stump, that stump would just, it would burn, it would glow, it, the fire would be so high. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you had a lot of party time this week with fires, right? Because they have lifted the burn ban in Lincoln Parish. And some of you have been waiting on that for days and days and days. Built your bonfires now. And the first time that it would come through and it would build that stump or burn that stump, the fire would, would just burn brightly. High. It said the second time that that fire would come across that piece of property, obviously, it would not burn quite as strongly because it already had been burnt once. And the third and the fourth time, and they said by the time that that fire had pushed through that stump or pushed through that property, after a while, there would barely be even a hot ember that you could find. I remember them describing that process. And I thought to myself, that seems to be a good description of what happens in so many people's lives. So many people's lives. As they continually and willfully reject the Holy Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus as Christ. What do I mean by that? It was the first time that you were maybe sitting in a church. may have been a revival service that you were a part of. And you heard the preacher preach. And some of us remember back in the revival days, the preacher came in and you knew him when he walked in because of the suit he wore. And the message you preached... Some of you remember those days when God and His Spirit would take this shabby-looking preacher and maybe this unskilled preacher and somehow the Holy Spirit would lodge that message in your heart and in your life and you felt conviction. I remember days like that. When I was struggling with God, I had not come to accept Him as my Savior yet, and I was struggling with Him. It was almost like the Holy Spirit would overcome me, and, and during that message, even though I may not could be able to tell you what the message totally was today, it was as though the Spirit was consuming me at that moment. I didn't know exactly what it was. I just knew something was, something was up. Looking back on it, I recognize that the Holy Spirit was working. 
Maybe the first time you heard that and, and God worked in your life and the Holy Spirit, you, you could feel the burning inside. You could feel this sense of conviction of who you were and what you had done. You thought to yourself, if I can just hold on to this pew during this invitation, if I can just simply stay where I am, if I make it through the next three minutes, maybe that preacher won't sing the second and the third verse, then I can make it. And the next time you came, it seemed like it was a little bit easier to reject the conviction as it came in your life. And the next time, and the next time, before you knew it, only maybe a small ember was burning inside. I say to you that when we continually, willfully reject the Spirit's manifestation of who Christ Jesus is, it can grow easier and easier. We can harden our hearts before long. We may be attributing those things of God to those things of Satan. Now may I say this to you? Listen to me. Listen. I do believe as long as there's breath in your body, there is hope for your salvation and work of God. I believe as long as there is breath in your body, even though you may have hardened, even though it may be just an ember, I say to you the conviction of God as it works upon your life can bring you to a place of salvation and life. I believe that. But he says to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony and power. Well, to continue to do that and to continue to do that and to continue to do that, he says eventually it is unforgivable because the Holy Spirit testifies to us who Jesus Christ really is. I say to you that his testimony reflects and speaks to us about Jesus as being the Christ Jesus being our Lord. Because that's the message that the Holy Spirit had brought. Again, these individuals, the most learned and supposedly the most spiritual people in all of Israel, they come down, they miss reason, they miss the Spirit's work, and they miss the identity of Christ. They willfully reject the identity of Christ. They decide for themselves, we will not recognize that Jesus is the Christ. We will not do that. We will willfully reject him. But again, everything that was being done by the Spirit's power was reflecting that Jesus was the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. And I say to you today that we have to make a choice in our lives as to the identity of Jesus and who he is. Many of you have heard C.S. Lewis framed this argument for us of making such a decision, of deciding in our lives if he is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Basically, as C.S. Lewis says, you've got to make one of those three decisions about Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus 
claim to be God. You can argue with me that all day. I'm telling you the New Testament demonstrates that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Savior. So if Jesus made such a claim, he's got to be one of the three. If somebody came around to you today, for example, and said, hey, I'm God, you would look at them and say, <clears throat> you need to go see Pastor Reggie. One, because you'd probably think they were mad. They were, they were out of their mind. And remember, earlier in these verses, some of those initial relationships that Jesus had, they thought Jesus was insane. And you, you, you may come to that realization in your life. I will tell you, that's a wrong place to be. That is not who Jesus is. He is not a lunatic. Well, if he's not a lunatic and he is not God, then, then he's got to be a liar. When these people come to me and they say something like, well, I believe Jesus is a good man, I just don't believe he's Lord. I want to respond to them. Do you, do you believe that good men lie? Most of the time they would say something like, no, good men don't. Well, Jesus can't be a good man and yet proclaim to be God because in your framework, the way you come at it, if he's not the Lord, then he's got to be a liar and he can't be a good man, right? So that leaves you with one possibility, and that is this. Jesus is Lord. And that is, that is the message of the Holy Spirit to us even this day. I love the way Jesus describes this in verse 27. He said, hey, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. For so long I read through that verse, I would just kind of skip over it and get to the other parts. But man, there's some good stuff there. Do, do you hear what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know, you can't go in and you can't, um, you can't bind or you can't destroy the utensils, the instruments of another man until you first bind that individual in the house. And Jesus said, let, let me tell you what I've done here. I've just kind of gone on into Satan's house and I have bound him now. And, and now I'm going to deal with the rest of the house. Man, isn't that good? Jesus said, I am the victor, I am the champion, I am the one that can go in, and I have all power and strength to destroy Satan and his whole household because I am Lord. That's what he says. And when you look at that and recognize it, you have to come forth and confess him as the Lord of your life. So what is the unforgivable sin? Again, the unforgivable sin is the continuous, willful rejection of the Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus as Christ. None of us in this place this morning, I believe, have ultimately committed such a sin. 
But I do believe that as we continue to do it, and as we willfully reject His Spirit's work, that one day, one day, when we find death itself, and the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. In that moment, in that time, we will find that that one offense was unforgivable. Makes all the sense in the world to me. God loves us in such a way that He would forgive us of every sin, all unrighteousness. That He's offered you and He's offered me life and freedom. And yet, if we would willfully reject that love, if we would continually reject such grace, then, my friends, we have made our own choices. We have made our own choices. And we have chosen unforgiveness. I say to you this morning, I say to you this morning, listen to the Spirit of God and His testimony regarding Jesus as Lord. This morning in your heart and your life, respond to the conviction that He brings. Respond to that grace and that love and experience the freedom that only Jesus Christ can bring. Come today and confess Him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning and we praise You. We celebrate the freedom and the forgiveness that we have had as believers here in this place. We are thankful that Your limitless grace and mercy has been demonstrated to us. God, I pray this morning for those who have not come and accepted you as their Lord and Savior. I, I pray for those this morning who even in this time, in this moment, experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. I pray that you would give them the liberty and the freedom to come and to confess you today. God, demonstrate your power and your work and your glory. Demonstrate your lordship even during this invitation, during this moment of reflection. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.